poopy. This is Mystery History Theater. The overarching title of this series is Who Ordered the Hit on Abe? Uh, which asks the question, another booth on the loose? I mean, central to all this is, is obviously the assassination. And the details about that are more or less straightforward, although there's questions there too. But what should be also addressed is with the United States presidents and uh, the number of times they've had their life attempted, how many times the assassination was successful but not recorded as an assassination. But it also shows how dirty politics have been for about two centuries, if not from the very founding of this country, and how presidents are handled and if they should divert from the script they're given, the agenda they're given, or they want to freelance, uh, they'll wind up dead. And such is the case here, which is, of course, not recorded in history books. Uh, we've lionized and deified Abraham Lincoln, one individual uh, alive at the time mentioned that he thought Lincoln, and this is the uh, member of the National Detective Police, who also was a spy prior to that for the North, but he said that if it had not been for the assassination, Lincoln would not be remembered as a remarkable president. I'll be that as it may. And also the fact that Lincoln was so Christian, which he was not, that's okay. It doesn't have to be. It's all right. But, of course, he's painted up as such a, well, he was a martyr, but um, almost, like we said, near godlike. Now, we have done in the last two segments a look at Booth, at his, in quotation marks, wife, Isola. Now, another individual comes into this drama. I said another booth in quotation marks. Because his likeness to booth allowed the perps behind the, if not assassination, the removal of Lincoln from office. Because there was talking about a... uh, a kidnap plot. But we won't get into that right now because I don't think Stanton, if he did orchestrate the hit on Abe, uh, was really too concerned about a kidnapping because that would only put Abe back after the kidnapping was over. And I think there are some parallel plots and intrigues that have not been uh, recorded because that information has been pretty much stamped out. And that is information that would point the finger at Stanton and several others. But now we have um, a James William Boyd. And as I was starting to say before, because he bore some resemblance, at least facially, to Booth, uh, allowed the lie to float that the individual that was shot in the barn at Garrett's farm was indeed James William Boyd and not John Wilkes Booth. 
And, of course, what's not lost on any of you, I'm sure, is that now you have two individuals that were tasked with a kidnapping plot, two with the same initials, two Southerners, um, and they also have the same initials. We might look also into another individual that I believe rode out right behind Booth after the assassination, and that was Edward Henson or Henson, uh, and not David Harold. It, it has always gone down as David Harold, and Neth and Gutridge provide evidence that it was not David Harold. But once you got to the point of the uh, trial and the, the, um, the transcriptions and stories of that trial that went on, it all pointed to David Harold as being Booth's accomplice. Uh, how much they told... Harold to dummy up while he was, you know, and these eight that were um, uh, convicted for uh, complicity in the uh, conspiracy to, well, assassinate Lincoln. I don't know how much, well, there, there wasn't a lot of time for the, the defense attorneys to prepare cases. That was deliberate. Um, and, of course, there were some that were, I'm sure, that were told to dummy up and perhaps in exchange for a lighter sentence that never came. One example is uh, John Surratt was told that his mother would not be executed. She was one of four that were uh, was executed. And Surratt, and we'll go over this some other time in the future, pledged to keep his mouth shut about certain things if his mother was spared, the hangman's noose. And then it turned out that she was not, and he had no idea until it happened that the supposed bargain that was struck, uh, in fact, was not upheld by the government side. Now, what, I mean, you can read uh, what Harold's transcript is when he was on the stand during the, uh, the trial in front of the military tribunal. I'll probably put that link up later. But what happens is a lot of authors writing after the fact base everything on the uh, trial. And as a result, they all come out with the same thing. And that thing is that it was Harold and Booth on the run uh, after the Friday night assassination. Uh, Neff and Gutridge from Dark Union show that it wasn't. And I do I rely too heavily on Dark Union? No. I rely heavily on Dark Union for a reason, and that is because it is the account best supported by documentation. So much went on, though, after the fact. I mean, stories change, stories get better. It's, it's, it's always going to be hard to uh, find a solitary path of truth through all this. I think the main thing, though, is to understand that Booth was not a lone gunman. That shouldn't come as a surprise, although he was the only trigger man that night. Uh, he was supported uh, by just who it's kind of hard to tell. There may have been a number of entities that were willing to uh, support his execution of Lincoln. And I had conjectured uh, two shows ago about, well, you know, it could have been the Knights of the Golden Circle. It could have been Andrew Johnson. It could have been Brits. Uh, it could have been Brits and uh, North American businessmen. It's kind of hard to tell, but uh, certainly Booth uh, was pictured as being a madman who decided, you know what, I'm going to kill Lincoln, and that is not the case. That shouldn't be surprised to any of you who listen to shows like this.
All right, so I'm going to pick it up about uh, James W. Boyd. And uh, as was, re- uh, well, it was mentioned in um, that both uh, show two, uh, two shows ago, that Boyd was brought into the plan supported by the uh, pork for cotton businessmen where they were hatching their plots and such up in Montreal, Canada. Uh, and Boyd was to supplant Booth, which did not please him. And we, it was recorded that he had said to Martha Mills, who was with him in Canada during that time, that he was being squeezed out. So we'll pick this up uh, in Dark Union, chapter called Deem Myself a Coward. Booth was doing his limited best to complete plans for the president's abduction. George Alfred Townsend, a Washington newspaper man whose admiration of the chief detective Lafayette Baker was rewarded with tidbits of privileged privileged information, later wrote that after the rebel uh, commissioners Clay and Thompson in Canada spurned Booth's invitation to help kidnap Lincoln, he had cast about um, for recruits and, quote, all those who presented themselves were military men, end of quote. This was largely the result of Booth's appeal to Colonel Mosby for aid. And Mosby was on the periphery of this situation uh, and was was quite the guerrilla who was successful uh, in uh, northern Virginia during the war. Uh, A lot of Mosby's men remained loyal to what was really not the Confederate States of America any longer, but to the cause and were still uh, tight enough that they could execute some kind of uh, plan, uh, be it. And mostly, I, I believe, they, they thought that they were going to spirit out Lincoln from D.C. down and bring him down into Richmond. So they were around. Uh, Confederate officers experienced an undercover activity. Uh, agents posing as deserters or turncoats handpicked scouts from Colonel Mosby's command. These were the military men drawn into the plot. In the closing months of 1864, there was a pattern of movement that, in light of later developments, could be envisaged as a sort of pocket mobilization. And uh, Timmy and um, Joey are in the house. And, of course, they were very polite until I started uh, reading. And then uh, Timmy thought it would be funny to compete. They're part of the show. We're all for the birds. Right. Uh, One of the military men uh, was Ringgold Browning, contrabandist, Confederate cavalryman, partisan scout, Will Browning's brother. Union Army pickets had arrested him as he seemingly lost his way and strayed into Union lines near Washington. He was registered at the old Capitol prison as lieutenant and adjutant to Colonel Mosby. His brother composed a request for his release that Vice President-elect Andrew Johnson signed. At the White House, it was endorsed by President Lincoln, who added that Browning could remain at large, quote, so long as he does not misbehave, end of quote. And here's the irony. Within a week, Ringgold Browning, Parole with the president's innocent approval was among those plotting the president's abduction. Another of the military men was Captain James William Boyd, 6th Tennessee Infantry. A Kentucky miller's son, orphaned in infancy, he was one of the three rebels captured by Union troops at Jackson, Tennessee in the summer of 1863. This was the trio that included R.D. Watson's brother James and a fellow courier named Harry D'Arcy. Now, if that name sounds familiar, uh, you would have heard it in the last audio with regard to Booth's wife, uh, Isola. 
Now, as I said before, uh, those that have a website dedicated to the Forrester family, uh, the matriarch of which would have gone back to uh, Isola, and the patriarch would have been Booth, uh, claimed that that never happened. There was no marriage, but as, as you know, we said before, if she did, it would be annulled because she was already married. And especially at that time, uh, polygamy would not be, or bigamy would not be looked upon very favorably. So it would have been a no, there would have been a wash. But the point was is that she was a companion of Booth. She was his lover. She bore two children uh, from him. And um, she was adopted, Isola was, by a family by the name of D'Arcy, or Darcy. It's, it's D with an apostrophe, capital A-R-C-Y, spelled the same. I don't think that there's any any uh, connection there, but in this kind of story, in the way that it's woven, I wouldn't be surprised. But still, this is not uh, the DRC connected with Isola's adoption and also impregnation by the oldest DRC boy, after whom she named her son. All right, so back to the story. They had been the object of a detective's manhunt that reached from Chesapeake Bay to the southern states. The pursuit had been by train, steamboat, and horseback, a long-distance chase that hunted, that the hunted trio turned into a cat-and-mouse game, availing themselves of crafty ruses, thunderstorms, and rail service interrupted by the Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> I'm going to kill them. James Watson and D'Arcy were hanged. The third prisoner, Boyd, was too valuable to his captors. He was an ace Confederate spy and a scout, a battle-hardened veteran who before the war had been a deputy sheriff, a telegrapher, and a railroad detective. Boyd had studied law under a friendly Tennessean judge, yet he adhered to a retributive code of his own, inherited from grandparents who had reared him. As a sheriff's deputy, he had shot dead a horse thief who resisted arrest. He killed a man who tried to rape his daughter at a party. Uh, well, we can all understand that. Uh, in the war, scouting behind Union lines, he was surprised by a Pennsylvania infantryman who fired at him, knocking him from his mount. Although grounded and bleeding, he quickly pulled around, reaching for his gun, and shot dead his approaching enemy. He suffered a wound in his right leg, however, that never healed. Now, remember that. He had a wound in his right leg that never healed and caused him to hobble every so often. Following his capture, that's Boyd's capture, he was sent to the Union stockade at Johnson Island, Ohio, where NDP men expert at getting captives to change sides worked on him. They failed to turn him around, but promised that if he supplied them with information gathered from other inmates, they would send cash to his consumptive wife and seven children. Boyd knew that his wife was most likely going to die in, uh, with him away. What Boyd gave the detectives was piecemeal and often, often meaningless. The arrangement ended. At age 41, Boyd blamed himself for the destitute state of his partly scattered family. Weary of scouting and espionage, he was genuinely disposed to change sides, but only in return for, for an unconditional parole that would allow him to return home and provide for the children he feared would soon be motherless. And this is the quote, uh, You and the kids come first, he wrote from prison to his wife, Caroline, showing a pathetic concern for his family that would trap the tall Confederate captain aging adventurer, an ill-starred war spy into the plot against Abraham Lincoln. 
Stanton ordered prisoner of war Boyd transferred to Washington for questioning on what he knew about the alleged treachery of Union officers two years earlier at Holly Springs, Mississippi, which had resulted in a humiliating defeat for the North. Boyd's arrival in Washington under tight guard was duly noted in the Evening Star, October 31, 1864, which also reported that he was lodged in solitary confinement at the old Capitol Prison. Now, when I looked this up, uh, there was, there's talk about how Stanton uh, made an overture to Boyd. And although it would sound like he, in fact, did uh, ask uh, about Boyd and whether or not he could provide information about some atrocities that were uh, allegedly conducted by Union troops in a Mississippi battle, it was Boyd that wrote a letter to Stanton stating all that he could do uh, in an exchange for an unconditional parole that would allow him to go back to his Tennessee home, care for his seven children, and more or less reconnoiter and gather information for the Union uh, while he was there, and really under no strange auspices because he would have been paroled and and everybody would be used to having him back again. I mean, they would not have seen him as um, a spy or a double agent, if you will. However, what it was stated in Dark Union about this mention of Boyd in the Evening Star, October 31st, 1864, going to the uh, Library of Congress website, chroniclingamerica.loc.gov, they do have the Evening Star, now the defunct newspaper, uh, in archive and digitized. And sure enough, on page one, under a subhead uh, reading, Sent to the Old Capitol, the old capital being the old capital prison. And it states, the following persons were sent to the old capital on Saturday and yesterday by Provost Marshal General Ingraham. Charge Stulinach, William Lee, John Thomas, John F. Harris, Stephen Jordan, Thos Nevitt, uh, James Nevitt, Franklin Purday, for violations of blockade are held for uh, board of prison, well, here we go, I'm sorry, <clears throat> are held for board of prize commissioners. There's admiralty for you. And it goes on. J.M. Uh, Alexander, 2nd Lieutenant, 5th Texas Infantry, and J.W. Boyd, 6th Tennessee Infantry, to be confined in a cell by himself. 41 rebel officers lately captured were brought up this morning on the mail boat and committed to the old capital. They were sent here by General Patrick. And while we're at it, um, on the front page of the Evening Star are uh, two other, oh, there's a lot here, a lot of small uh, news bites. And I'll read two of them. This is kind of interesting. The dateline is New York, October 31st. The rebel papers appear to be unanimous in favor of arming uh, the blacks. The editor of the Southern Confederacy, in writing home to his papers, says... The pressure brought to bear upon the authorities here favoring the arming of the blacks has been too strong to resist. Hence, it is with gratitude that I am able to state officially that arrangements are now being made to arm for the spring campaign 300,000 slaves whose masters are to be compensated by the Confederate government. The slaves thus armed are to have their freedom and 50 acres of land each um, 
which uh, ensures them permanent homes in the South. Now, you've got to ask yourself whether or not that is uh, a, a real story or at least a, a real story about what has been advanced as a true event or a true plan, because I don't know that this ever came to anything. I'm just wondering if it's some kind of, you know, scare tactic uh, to get people in the North perhaps more behind the war or whatever, but uh, I don't know. I just, that kind of sounds a little, mm, but anyway, it could be real. And there's another little blurb here. Uh, this has to do with uh, what I consider the best trivia question uh, about the Civil War. What was the site of, or the scene, of the most northern conflagration in the Civil War? Most people would say Gettysburg. Aha, but here we go. This, a little news bite entitled, The Vermont Raiders, Montreal, October 31st. The Confederate managers in the case of the St. Albans Raiders is uh, the event of a decision being given by the Canadian court to surrender the Raiders uh, intend appealing to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in England. It is reported that the Washington government has notified England of their intention to increase their armament on the lakes for the purpose of protecting the frontier. Uh, the St. Albans Raiders were um, tasked with robbing two banks in St. Albans, Vermont, and then running back over the uh, the uh, border again. Um, so this really did happen. But it's interesting because uh, what lakes are they talking about where it's stated that Washington intends to increase the armament on the lakes? Well, this would have meant to me, if it had to do with St. Albans and Montreal, they're talking about Lake Champlain. <laughs> or is the United States government going to take an opportunity to use this to put um, some heavy hardware on the Great Lakes, which they have, the United States always wanted from the time when they sent William Henry Harrison up there during the War of 1812. And if you've ever seen, and you probably haven't, but author Charles Wilcox, who wrote Transformation of the Republican, has another book out now uh, of another title. Uh, but he had sent me a history channel from Canada about uh, the War of 1812 and shows that, Harrison went up into Canada, and what was desired by the United States at that time was to take the landmass between Detroit, let's say, and uh, Niagara Falls, and uh, win that over as part of the United States, which would then give the United States the Great Lakes as well. So uh, kind of interesting, uh, the, the Canadian take on the War of 1812 and what all that William Henry Harrison was doing. So, of course, I'm just wondering if uh, the United States was going to uh, take this opportunity that even though this situation occurred in Vermont uh, and near Lake Champlain, that the lakes they're talking about are not Champlain and George, but the Great Lakes, would, you know, that'd be beautiful. Okay, um, one other story that I have found that I thought you would find interesting, you should get a hoot out of, uh, has to do with um, uh, an, an agency that you're very, very familiar with. The subhead, U.S. Internal Revenue. Assessor's Office, Washington, October 31st, 1864. 
Notice is hereby given that the list of assessments for the special income tax for 1863 is now in this office, uh, 468 7th Street West, open to the inspection of all persons disposed to examine the same for the space of 10 days from this date, during which time appeals for, uh, from the assessment will be heard if presented in writing. And as it is desirable that all should bear a just proportion of the taxes imposed by the government, it is earnestly solicited that a general inspection of said list may be made by all those who desire all others, as well as themselves, to bear their proper proportion of said tax, and to give the necessary information of those who have not made a return or where the return is not as full as it ought to be. <laughs> Do you believe this? Here it is, the old snitch state, right? Okay, yeah, sure. And also to give the necessary information of those who have not made a return, or where the return is not as full as it ought to be. You know who you are. All right. Finally, all persons who have not made return uh, because of absence or sickness and do not by the expect- expiration of the aforesaid 10 days will be assessed another 50% added to the tax. So we know that you're sick out there. and But you know what? If you can make it in here, we'd really appreciate it. Otherwise, we'll bankrupt your ass. There it is. 50% on top of what you already owe. What great guys. And, of course, by all means, snitch on your neighbor. And I promise to leave the page now, but there's another one I have to read. Uh, this is uh, page, uh, let's see, this is page two, still. Second column. Headline. Another state admitted into the Union. Now, this is 1864. All right? This is the end of 1864. What state do you think that could be? And you'll be surprised when uh, you hear it. All right, or your guess is made. Here we go. A proclamation by the President of the United States of America. Now, get this. The I-Man would have loved this. Whereas the Congress of the United States passed an act which was approved on the 21st day of March last entitled, quote, an act to enable the people of Nevada to form a constitution and state government and for the admission of such state into the Union on an equal footing with the original states. I wonder what they mean by original states. You know? Would that be what? The original states, like 13? I don't know. And because um, there's a whole bunch of states that aren't really right now in the United States of America, but I think it's interesting that Congress was called the Congress of the United States where the president is the president of the United States of America. But uh, why Nevada, you would ask, right? Guess where the silver is? Aha, there you go. It's always about the money. All right, now back to the situation with Boyd and uh, his presence being uh, um, acknowledged by uh, Stanton, Secretary of State, the uh, Secretary of War, rather, excuse me. Understand something, too, that when we read for the Dark Union, it mentioned that he was not hung, hanged, rather, with the other two, uh, with his other two companions. Because he showed, uh, I wonder how they knew that, that would be the uh, Union captors, how he would be of uh, special interest to the government. Uh, Did Boyd tell them what he knew or that what he had? But at any rate, he was not hanged. He was taken prisoner 
And on October 31st, 1864, uh, as you heard from that reading of the small newspaper article, uh, he was being taken to the old Capitol prison. Now, this is February 14th, 1865. This is when he lays it on the table to Stanton. And here's the letter that he wrote. Honorable E.W. Stanton, Secretary of War. Sir, I made a written statement to Colonel W.P. Wood. And that guy is another piece of work for another time. And the Honorable C.A. Dana, Assistant Secretary of War, concerning the capture of Howley Springs, Mississippi, with the garrison and stores. It was, and in parentheses, as you have in the statement referred to above, in the parentheses, was done by the treachery of a federal officer upon the condition of a release Upon taking the oath of allegiance and full protection by the government, I made this statement. I knew that you were all surprised at such an act being done by an officer of your army. Nevertheless, it is true to the letter. Yet I do not know the particulars of the trade. Bonner the scout does know that he, Bonner, is a shrewd, intelligent man and a particular friend of mine. I can control him, bring him here if necessary, but to prove what you wish uh, must not or should not be done by anyone that has belonged to the rebel army. Colonel W., referring back to Wood, told me that there was nine companions of his regiment to come with him. I have forgotten why he told me that uh, they did not come. Bonner knows some of the officers concerned in the matter, and to get their names and secure them and keep them separate, you could ar arrive at all of the facts without ever making it known to the public that you got your information from me or any other person ever in the rebel service. He, Colonel W., stayed with me in my room at Granada two days and nights. I would here ask your attention to what I shall propose and also a speedy answer. I was in charge of the scouts and secret servicemen of the Pemberton Army from the time Bragg left Tupelo for uh, Kentucky. I remained at General Villapeguas until General Van Dorn took command of all troops in northern Mississippi. I was at the Battle of Corinth, after which General Pemberton came and took command, and General Van Dorn was made Chief of Cavalry. I know every prominent man in West Tennessee and North Mississippi. I know every hog path from Corinth to Paducah, Memphis, Tupelo, Granada. I know who has been smuggling and who gives information and how it all is done. I know where the cattle, sh uh, where cattle, sheep, and grain is deposited uh, to be got by Forrest. And, in fact, everything connected with the Army, Forrest being a military man. Uh, also, the cotton dealers and how they pay for it and how goods get out in large quantities of particular kinds. Now, the fact is simply this, that if I had ever been a Democrat or secessionist, you might have pulled my tongue out and you never would have got one word out of me. Another thing I have been uh, is court-martialed twice and let me manage. Let's see. Another thing I have been, oh yeah, is court-martialed twice, and I have a little score to settle for that. That's how that goes, all right. <clears throat> uh, apparently he didn't particularly care for being court-martialed twice. Now, if you will give me your confidence and let me manage matters in western Kentucky, uh, western Tennessee and Kentucky, west of the Tennessee River, I will soon convince you that I have the energy and capacity to render invaluable service to the government. But my name must be kept out of newspapers. I must go simply as a citizen or paroled soldier with a written protection to the command officer of that department, for I will put him in possession of all facts, or at least manage arrests so skillfully that will never be known in the matter. And also another fact, I will have no arrests made that will require my testimony or appearance at all. 
and I will make no failures to convict on ample and respectable testimony. I hold that a good detective should never make arrests or be a witness. My reasons for not being known as a government detective is first that before the war, I had made a considerable reputation in that line. And if it was known that I was in your service, I could not get the ropes again throughout the country. Another reason is that I could not wear my scalp very safely. I would expect pay according to the service performed. I know that I could do more than any other man. I have lived in Jackson 40 years and am well acquainted throughout the state. My reason for urging an answer to this proposition is that my wife is dead and and I have seven children that are living upon charity, not being able to support themselves. That would be a good excuse for me to remain at home and I could travel over the country without a question being asked. Let me, if you please, hear from you immediately and oblige. James W. Boyd. And this is a postscript. And this proposition is not accepted. Please send it back. Also, the statements that you have of mine. I wish I could have had an interview with you. I cannot write all that I would like to say. I have now, uh, am now fearful that I have written more than I ought to have done, for I do not know but that the officer referred to as friends or relatives that, he, that see or hear of this matter. So that was a letter from uh, Boyd to Stanton. It was addressed from the Kyle prison. So he was brought to the old Capitol prison uh, in October of 1864. The letter uh, I just read was from February 1865. And really, it would only be a couple of more weeks when Boyd would be mentioned in that letter from Cape uh, Girardeau from Barnes to Watson in New York, the Mill brothers, saying we want we want Boyd to execute this uh, Abduction of Lincoln, uh, and let's forget about Booth. I'll pick it up from uh, chapter 12 in Dark Union, now referring again to, to uh, Boyd. Uh, Since his transfer to Washington four months earlier, and supposedly in solitary confinement thereafter, Boyd had done undercover work, probably because of his expertise in telegraphy, for his captors. But in the meantime, his wife Caroline had died, leaving Boyd, leaving seven children in Tennessee virtually orphaned. On February 14th, and you heard the letter, Boyd, uh, Boyd wrote a letter addressed to the Secretary of War Stanton, delivered by Colonel Wood, prison superintendent. This, has no val- this was no Valentine, but Boyd's request for a full pardon. In return, he offered to serve Stanton as a special detective. He could supply the Secretary with valuable information on the Holly Springs affair and also on the contraband traffic across battle lines. There would be risks. Um, and, and, of course, this is what Boyd wrote. If it was known that I was in your service, I could not wear my scalp very safely. Uh, Boyd asked Stan for a personal interview. Within 24 hours after his letter reached Stanton's desk, the register of the old Capitol prison showed James W. Boyd, captain, released on O February 15th. A certificate of his release carried the name and address of his NDP control, one William B. Earl, Park Hotel, New York. Boyd now had an important secret assignment that, if successfully carried out, would be rewarded with freedom and a new life in Mexico, where the nationalist leader, Benito Juarez, offered land to men of either side in America's war if they helped him liberate his uh, people from the grip of imperial France. Uh, At recruiting offices run by Juarista agents in the United States, parole veterans were already signing up for two years in the emigrant army. That's E-M, okay, emigrant army. Boyd expected to organize and command its Secret Service Division. More than ever, he was burdened by concern for his children. While in jail, he had heard that his stepdaughter, Emma, was about to marry a much older man to ensure security for herself and her younger siblings. He advised her not to. 
uh, quote, I wish your mother was still with you, end of quote. He went on to say that his leg was mostly healed, not so. Boyd had uh, been lucky enough to escape amputation, but the mini ball that had struck him earlier in the war had dealt its characteristic havoc of laceration and fracture, causing periodic festering and a superation. He told Emma of signing up for a two-year hitch in Mexico with the emigrant movement, and he proudly enclosed a photo of himself wearing his new emigrant uniform. Before Mexico, he must go to Canada. He did not say why, but added, I will send money as often as I can. Kiss the kids for me. The day Boyd wrote to his stepdaughter, he appeared at 178 and a half Water Street. That's in Manhattan. Accompanied by his NDP control, Earl. The purpose of that visit may have been to obtain information on Confederate contraband activity. But if he did not already know of a plot to kidnap Lincoln and of his role in it, he soon would. At any rate, Boyd's call was significant enough for Richard DeMille to notify R.D. Watson at once. And this is a quote. We had a long talk. Our situation has become more complicated than anyone dreamed. But we now stand at the door of one of the largest business deals in history. There will be adequate profits for all. After visiting the DeMilles in New York, Boyd entrained for Montreal. He still mourned his wife. This is Boyd. The heart went out of me, uh, he wrote to a friend in Tennessee, when Carrie died. I still can't get used to it. He did not say why he was in Canada or for whom he was working. He ended his letter with, quote, I know there are thousands who will condemn me for what I am going to do, but they just can't know how I feel. End of quote. And then Boyd was in Belleville, that is in Ontario. With regard to uh, Edward or Edwin Henson or Henson, it's, it's spelled a couple of ways. I can't say too much right now without going through uh, the minutes and hours immediately after Lincoln is dead. But here's where the confusion sets in about who was Booth's companion, and as it will turn out later, who was Boyd's companion? Because uh, after the uh, assassination, there were two pairs of, you want to call them suspects, who were uh, fleeing what they thought would be uh, capture and certain death, and they would be right. So I pick it up in um, Dark Union for as much as I want to go into it now. This is from chapter 17 on Holy Night. Inside the theater, some of the audience panicked and fought for the exits. Of course, now Lincoln has just been killed. Others strove to reach the dress circle, if not the box itself, from which came shouts for medical aid. Mary Lincoln screamed. A mob choked the carpeted stairways and lobby, spilling outside to form shock clusters on the 10th Street sidewalk. A local resident familiar with every outlet from Baptist Alley, which was the one behind a Ford Theater, had the presence of mind to speed friends in opposite directions to the lane that opened on F Street, to another egress on E Street, and to a private passageway along a grocery on 9th. They were too late. The assassin had vanished, and no one knew for sure in which direction. Residents along F Street heard hoofbeats passing eastward, but this was off Booth's course and had other drawbacks, an extended slope upward and deep furrows plowed in the unpaved clay by traffic crowded to one side since the installation of the streetcar railway. To prevent pedestrians from tumbling into the muddy channels, the city corporation had erected fencing along the edge of the sidewalk. This formed another barrier to anyone in a hurry along uh, the lane from ba Baptist Alley into F Street. But someone was heard 
fleeing east on horseback over the timbered rails. Wrongly believed thereafter to have been John Wilkes Booth, it was Edwin Hinson, a pint-sized guerrilla scout to the south who had smuggled medicines for Booth, joined the actor's conspiracy and was to prove his most devoted subordinate. Hinson appears in the NDP's photo of assembled smugglers. Yeah, this is kind of funny. Uh, under the pretense of just taking a picture of some, I don't know, supposed, supposed boatman, uh, it was actually the NDP taking a photograph of about two dozen contraband smugglers who thought they were just getting a photo, you know, for some other reason. And in that photo was both Hinson and Harold. Um, <clears throat> Hinson was one of a few conspirators who had shown up at Ford's Theater. I really don't know who other, what other conspirators did. Between ten and half past ten from curtain windows on F Street, his roan horse was seen tethered at a gap left in the pedestrian's fence by removal of a board earlier in the day. Hinson rented the roan that, that afternoon at Naylor's stable with the assistance of Will Browning's Mosbyite brother, Ringgold. And during those electrifying moments in the theater, Hinson had lurked in a vacant lot that stretched from Ford's green room to F Street. If Hinson had not known uh, by then that Booth meant to kill, he at least expected him to bring the president outside, a captive at gunpoint. Hinson waited for Booth in the shadow of the green room. When he knew the actor had emerged through the back door at Baptist Alley, and was making off on horseback, he too had moved. Occupants of the alley, tenements, and back rooms at F Street heard him clamber over a six-foot fence bordering the vacant lot. To reach his horse, Henson had to squeeze through the gap in the second fence, the protective uh, paling along the curb. Uh, the rutted clay was unsafe, so Henson rode off at a gallop along the streetcar planking. Neighborhood dwellers hearing the rapid hoofbeats on timber were also puzzled by a series of shrill whistles, whistles, sorry, the Mosby touch. Mosby, Mosby's uh, gorillas uh, whistled uh, to signal each other. Uh, they were not the only odd phenomena that night. Someone had shut off the power to the commercial telegraph. For three hours, the only communication out of Washington would be over military lines. And within the same 30 minutes after, shooting, after the shooting at Ford's uh, theater, Someone at the gas works on Maryland Avenue shut off the gas and fed the lights around the Capitol and westward along Pennsylvania Avenue. This was about the time Booth spurred his horse eastward along the same stretch. Uh, so that's all I'm going to get into right now about Hinson. Hinson and Harold physically were built the same. Uh, but again, it was Hinson that had uh, rented a horse. I believe, and I'm not sure about this, whether Harold had rented a bay for, for Booth. But Booth was on a bay. Henson was on a roan. And because of the confusion, uh, well, it's believed that Harold was the one that rode out after Booth. Booth was the first to cross the bridge into Maryland. But more about that later. I don't want to say anything more than this, just to, to add something else to this. Uh, this was in, uh, again... D.C.'s Evening Star. All right, this is in the May 17th edition. And this is testimony given at the trial of the conspirators. And this is from one Sergeant Silas D. Cobb. 
testified that he was on the night of the assassination of the president on duty at the Navy Yard Bridge and saw three men approach rapidly on horseback between half past 10 and 11 o'clock. Witness challenged them and advanced, um, advanced to them to recognize them. Witness was satisfied. They're talking about Cobb here. Witness was satisfied that they were proper persons to pass and pass them. Witness could not identify any of the persons as being one of the men. Witness recognized the photograph of Booth as the man who passed first. Witness asked him who he was. He said his name was Booth. I asked him, where from? He answered, from the city. I asked him, where are you going? Going home. I asked where his home was. He said, in Charles, which I understood to be Charles County. I asked him, what town? He said he didn't live in any town. I said, you must live in some town. He said, I live, in, I live close to Bryantown, but I do not live in town. I asked him why he was out so late. If he did not know persons were not permitted to pass after that time of night. He said it was news to him. He said that he had uh, some way to go, that it was dark, and that, the thought, uh, and that he thought he would have a moon. The men approached singly several minutes time between each. The second one, who was a small-sized man, did not seem to have been riding rapidly. He was from five to ten minutes later than the first, which was Booth. Witness asked him who he was. He said his name was Smith, that he was going to White Plains. And witness asked him now he, uh, how he came to be out so late. <clears throat> he made use of a rather indelicate word in replying, from which I should judge he had been in bad company. Witness had a good view of the man's face before uh, the guardhouse uh, door. He was about the same size of Harold, but lighter complexion. Did not think Harold was the man. All right. Cobb going on. I allow him to pass, but the other man I turned back. This was a guy who thought that he was getting ripped off the stableman at Nailers, who wanted his horse back. Uh he did not seem to have sufficient business to warrant me in passing him. He made an inquiry whether a man had passed on her own horse. The second one who had come up made no inquiry in regard to another horseman. The second horse was a roan and did not seem to be trotting. I should think it was a kind of half-racking. Booth rode a rather undersized bright bay with a smooth, shining skin. Uh, he looked smooth and as though he had a short push. He seemed restive and uneasy much more so than the writer. So what Cobb is saying here, he said, um, a witness, the witness had a good view of the man's face before the guardhouse door. He was about the same size as Harold, which Henson was, but lighter complexion, did not think Harold was the man. So Cobb didn't think that the second writer was Harold either. He thought, well, he didn't know who it was, but he thought it was not Harold. But Henson, but we'll get into that later on. So what's going to shape up is after the dastardly deed is done, uh, there are there will be, I guess, well you could say, the assassination took place on Good Friday night. Uh, Harold is picked up the next morning, drunk. This is the guy that supposedly rode out after Booth, uh, and. Uh, Harold got rounded up and brought in to be photographed, as we talked about before. And it was found to be strange that when he was photographed, as other witnesses, well, not witnesses, but suspects were, that he should be out and about again, but he was. And on Monday, he was with uh, 
a cavalry troop that was going about the Maryland countryside looking for whatever they could find, whatever people they could find. And that's when, in the company of the Union troops, Harold uh, brought them to Boyd's house. Because Boyd was, was supposedly going to kidnap Lincoln that night. But when he heard that there was an assassination, he knew that he was not going to kidnap him. And also, and wisely so, he figured his butt was grass too, and he ought to get out of Dodge. What it comes down to, and we'll go into it in more detail, because it really is kind of fascinating. There were two pairs of suspects who were on the loose. History records that there was at least only one. They do kind of admit there might be Boyd out there too, but they couple, that is mainline history, couples... Booth with Harold, when in essence Booth was with Hinson. But however that works out, it turns out that the troops have Harold and Booth, but it's really Boyd, trapped in the farmhouse. Okay, so in essence they feel that Harold and Boyd were together all the time, when that is not true. It was Henson with Booth, Harold picked up later, used by the troops to scout out sympathizers and such, and that's when Boyd joins the mix with Harold. And then uh, Boyd and Harold wind up at Garrett's farm, and Boyd winds up dead. We can talk about that, too. So more about that later, but that's the story. Uh, not trying to be uh, evasive or uh, teasing about not talking about the actual assassination, but although we'll, you know, touch upon it, I mean, it is kind of straightforward except for one pretty glaring controversy, and that is many of the eyewitnesses do not have Booth hobbling across the stage because of his fall from the box. Of course, his spur got caught in the bunting. They said he was running quite well, and that Booth incurred an injury to his left leg. Remember, Boyd had taken a, a mini ball in his right leg, which was hurting him at this particular time. Booth has a fall with his horse in the Maryland countryside. Remember, this is, you know, this is inky black as night, you know. There aren't street lamps in those days. So um, it was from the fall of the horse, but be that as it may, does it really matter in a sense? For nothing other than this, that you could have two absolutely opposed accounts of whether Booth was hobbled, running across the stage, or not hobbled. And some of the people who attested the fact that he was not limping, that's pretty hard to override, but, well, more about that later. Uh, this has been uh, Mystery History Theater. This is another Booth on the Loose? Well, yeah. But more about that later. See you next time.